Isn't that so good? I love that song. I, it took me about five minutes to write it, but I, it, everything in it was, it meant every word. Good evening, everybody. You hanging in there? Yesterday was fun, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, I was talking about football. You know, I, I think I'm sick. And so if I fall off this chair at any point, somebody come and grab me. I know Debbie won't. So I'm going to need somebody else to be a willing volunteer. But until then, let's try to do uh, church. We are in right now the season of Epiphany, which is different than the season of Christmas. And Christmas, uh, let me try to, how do I talk about the difference? Christmas is the celebration of when Christ came. Epiphany is the season where we keep in mind how Christ still comes. How Christ still uh, breaks into our lives in big and beautiful and small and holy ways. And we learn to be present to each and every one of those ways. In the Epiphany season, uh, the image that is often tied to these days is one of light. Now, I don't think I need to bring you up to speed on how light functions, but light does not create anything new. Light only reveals that which has been here the whole time. And so when we think about epiphany, we think about the lights coming on, the, the seals being unsealed, the lids coming off. The season of epiphany is when things that we typically do not see get dragged into the daylight so we finally can see them for what they are. And that is beautiful and that can also be terrifying because there are some things that we'd rather not see, right? I was at Grandview Lodge this weekend, for example, and my friend and I were having a talk and he was telling me about his child who had just been born not long ago and I thought we were getting into a deep moment where he said, I had this realization that my belly button is essentially my old mouth. And I thought, like, that's an image that I didn't need. I was having an enjoyable weekend away, but now I can't shake that. There are some things that I just don't need to see. Now, that doesn't mean what he said was wrong nor untrue. And so though it led me to puke, I also want to say that my puke was not a reflection of his truth. What do you do with truths like that? What do you do with, with the truths, the things that, that are brought into the light that call into question how you are living your life, that make you squirm, that make you want to run away, look away? I want to talk about that tonight. Because I think when we think about reclaiming Jesus and we think about putting away childish things, we're going to have to pick up some new adult things. And one of those things is learning how to stay in the room so we can actually discern truth and not dismiss the ones that make us feel small, gross, uncomfortable, or anything in between. To do so, I want to look at John 18. John 18 is the text in Scripture where Jesus is standing before Pilate. Jesus is standing before Pilate. He has been dragged there by orders of the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, under charges of, of him claiming to be a king, which, if true, is, is a problem because that's a seditious act that would be punishable by death. So Jesus is in a pickle here. He goes to the balcony of Pilate, and he's brought before, like, all of the powers in the world. I mean, this is the marbled, adorned palace uh, where the imperial seal is, is all over the place. And it's just reminding him that this is the peak and the pinnacle of power when we think about the world as it is. And that's a problem for Jesus because that is also then a scorned lover. You'll remember when Jesus was in the woods and the world was offered and he said, no thanks. 
The world in all of its power is the scorned lover and finally has a chance to strike back. Pilate says this to Jesus. So, you're a king. Jesus answered him, you, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, the reason why we celebrate Christmas, the, the reason why we just went into the season we were in is because he was born not just for an ambiguous mission, not just to live his days and then die, but he came for a reason. And that reason is to tell the truth to testify to something that is bigger than the talking heads on TV would suggest, to name the thing behind the things that we can tend to sense but rarely see. Jesus says that I was born, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In other words, everyone who can feel the falsehoods around them they are the ones who will be able to find my voice. Can you feel the falsehoods around you? Go big picture and bring it in. In our geopolitical world, can you feel the falsehoods around you? City-state level, can you feel the falsehoods around you? Family dinner table, can you feel the falsehoods around you? When you look in the mirror at night, can you feel the falsehoods around you? In 1881, the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky died. And at his funeral, his eulogy was given by the philosopher and poet Vladimir uh, Solovyov. And Solovyov, he had this very unique perspective on who Dostoevsky is, one that I would say is actually very accurate. He knew that he was a great writer. We all knew he was a great writer. But even more than that, uh, Solivov said that, that, that Dostoevsky was a prophet. In his life, we can see the light of epiphany breaking through. There is something in the things that he wrote and something in the things that he said that bring us closer towards reality. In the eulogy that he gave at Dostoevsky's funeral, he said the following words, which I think are, are fascinating. He said this, the first precondition of being called a spiritual leader is to perceive and feel the falsehood that is prevailing in society and then to dedicate one's life to a struggle against that falsehood. If one tolerates the falsehood and resigns oneself to it, one can never become a prophet. A prophet is what Jesus was saying, one who testifies to the truth. One can never become a prophet if they tolerate lies and they resign their lives to living inside of them. If one cannot rise above material life, one cannot even become a citizen in the kingdom of the spirit, far less a leader of others. And, and so I ask again, can you feel the falsehoods? And if you can, if the falsehoods on all their different levels can indeed be felt, my follow-up question is, how do you suppose those falsehoods will be fought? What can you do to counteract all of the counterfeits that are coming your way? Can it be done? This is the question that the greatest movie that was ever created um, was really trying to explore in 1998, The Truman Show. For those of you who hate life and joy and happiness and, and 
everything in between. Let me bring you up to speed on what this movie is. Truman Burbank, born inside of a fake world for the sake of a reality TV show. So everything he has ever done from birth to uh, becoming an adult, it's been captured for a live audience on the outside world who is watching him, who is growing up with him, who is loving every minute. And as they're watching him, they recognize that he's starting to put the pieces together, that something feels off. Like there's something behind the thing that I need to see and I can only sense. And every time I start to see it, I see the crack get a little bit wider. Watch this. Christoph, let me ask you, why do you think that uh, Truman has never come close to discovering the true nature of his world until now? We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. In the beginning of The Truman Show, a star falls from the sky. Well, a light falls from the ceiling of a sky-high set that encloses an artificial town built for the life of one man and the entertainment of the whole world. The light says Sirius 9 Canis Major, which refers to Sirius the brightest star in the night sky. This star, which Homer once called an evil portent, bringing heat and fevers to suffering humanity. In the film, the falling of Sirius is the first in a series of ruptures in Truman's fake reality. A series that ends here, with an actual rupture, a breach in things as they are. Like in Homer, Peter Weir, director of The Truman Show, envisions this door into real reality in darker terms than you might expect. All the symbols we usually associate with goodness and positivity are behind Truman. Bright blue skies, sunbeams breaking through the clouds, an expansive sea of possibility. Reality, truth, and authenticity, on the other hand, are relegated to a small, single rectangle of shadow hardly the light at the end of the tunnel that we normally associate with liberation. All throughout the film, freedom for Truman is linked tightly with trauma. Every peek behind the curtain is accompanied by some form of pain, whether it's the pain of seeing the image of a deceased loved one, the pain of a true connection abruptly cut short, the pain of memory, or simply the pain of uncertainty, of not knowing what it is you're seeing. That's of course a pain that we're all familiar with. It's why, for the most part, we see only what we want to see. Truman has been privy to a lifetime full of hints, clues to the fact that his world is not as it seems. Truman! It's television! Yes! But to incorporate yes, those clues means to reconfigure the entire narrative of his existence. And rewrites like that just aren't free. They cost. They cost suffering. When you think about truth, when you think about Pilate's question that he comes with, to Jesus with, what is truth? Do you want to actually hear it? What are the things that you're pretending not to know? What are the truths that you know but you cannot actually name because once you name, you'll have to do something about it? What are the things that you don't want to see because it will mess up everything about your own story? That movie further, and change is hard, right? Transformation is hard. Growing wider isn't easy. Are there things that you're afraid of finding out because it will mean that you're going to have to say some things and go to some places and take on a new turn in your story that's going to hurt and it's going to be hard? I had a friend uh, four or five months ago whose daughter 
No, daughter's friend was getting married. And she was getting married to another woman. This woman who is a friend is a um, very theologically conservative person and said, as much as I love her, I will not go to that wedding. I'm not going to be a part of it. We had some good conversations, did some exegetical things, talked about scripture, took it further, talked about um, how this plays out, what we know about modern, all of these different pieces. And at the end of it, maybe after the third or fourth meeting of these kinds of conversations where we were just eyes down on the paper, we lifted our eyes and looked at one another and she said this to me. She said, you know, here's the truth. I'm scared that if I go, I'm going to find it to be absolutely beautiful and it's going to make me betray everything I've ever known. I'm going to probably have to leave my job. I mean, there's going to be a rift between my husband and me. My church will no longer feel like my church. Why would I want to go into a place like that if it changes all of my postures out here? Can you handle the truth? And are you willing to be handled by the truth? That fear that my friend voiced is the same fear that Pilate first came to Jesus with. See, when you hear the story of Pilate and Jesus on the, on the balcony together, uh, when I grew up, there was a specific sermon. I don't know why it stuck with me so much. Maybe it was like the passion in preacher guy's voice, but he was using this text and he was talking about how you will notice, Matt, that Jesus does not negotiate with terrorists. When Pilate comes to Jesus and tries to tempt him to distort truth in our post-truth world, Jesus stays silent. Jesus does not respond. He doesn't interact with evil. He just keeps a cold shoulder locked in and tight and his mouth shut the entire time. Now you go out and you do the exact same thing. Don't speak back when evil speaks to you. That is what it is. That's not the story though. Read the text. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside. Pilate asked the question, but Pilate left before he could hear an answer. And I know he did that because I know how I do that. It is very easy to ask questions, but then to leave the room. It is very easy to run away from that which is coming at us. I could ask Lauren, I could say, babe, how, how am I, like really, how am I as a dad? Do I want to hear that truth though? How am I doing as a friend? See, I want to surround my life with a lot of different errands who are going to build me golden calves, but not Moses's who will make me walk out in the woods. But that's what Jesus calls us to. And so while it is tempting to run in the opposite direction, while it is tempting to actually even buy in and take on the script that Auden puts before us where he says that we would rather die, we would rather be ruined than actually change. It is tempting to fall back on a life like that where we are conditioned in the context we're in with the comforts that we are had. But First Peter says that Christians of all people are the ones who are committed to truth at all costs. And in the process of that pursuit, no matter where it may bring you, no matter what it might take from you, you are being purified for the purpose of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Stripping away the illusions 
we need people of truth like that. We need people who are unwilling to live in a beautiful lie because they cannot handle an ugly truth. We need people who recognize that our pursuit might not be cozy. It might be a dark door and not the wide expanse of the sea. It might hurt. But we can no longer do our dealings with one another, create our postures and positions off of soundbite theology and bumper sticker political ideologies. We need to actually stay in the room and listen fully. What is the truth requires you to keep your feet planted even when everything in you wants to run away. This might be the hardest thing to learn how to do. But to be a Christian, if you want to hear the voice like we sang about this desire to hear your voice, then we have to assume that there is truth beyond our comfort zone. And we have to be committed to staying to find out what exactly that truth is. That is how the whole system falls apart. Paul talks about this. Paul, in the stomach of the empire, says that if we're actually going to be people of light in a darkening world, if we're actually going to make a dent in the darkness outside and bring some good news in a world where daily we're being stuffed full with bad news, if we want to go that way, then we cannot just wage war against one another. We have to wage war against the whole system, the principalities and powers, the things that we do not identify but name, but they're out there. They're pulling the strings, and we can sense them. And so once we pursue them, then we'll start to change things. This is the story of the Truman Show, part two. And actually, I was watching it again recently, and I was really struck by how easily The Truman Show can be read as an allegory for the present. Like Truman's town of Seahaven, our own world seems to be experiencing a similar series of ruptures. Ruptures like the Great Recession in 2008, the Arab Spring, like the killings of young black men by police or our increasing awareness of them, like Brexit, the splitting of the UK from Europe, and most recently like the rise of the political outsider movements of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I think American society at large is a lot like Truman Burbank, laboring like him for 30 plus years under a system that is finally showing itself to be ridiculous. Society like Truman is trying to wake itself up while stumbling under the pain that surfaces from doing so. The Truman Show is a massive operation with a crew and cast of thousands, but for all the power that Kristoff commands, the show's success always hinges on Truman himself. It can only work if Truman believes in it. He could leave at any time. If he was absolutely determined to discover the truth, there's no way we could prevent him. The powerful in our world hold things in place like Kristoff holds Truman. But we hold ourselves in place, too. If nothing else, it's clear that in 2016, we are slowly waking up into a new political reality. Like in Truman's world, the power relationships of our own have gained and consolidated strength by convincing us that they're normal, like laws of nature. By taking any breach and folding it back into the narrative, they've kept all those like Truman who are perennial losers at bay. But ideologies don't last forever. Eventually, they crumble under their own weight and the increasing refusal 
of people to believe in them. Thank you for your help. You're welcome, Truman. The Truman Show shows us what waking up looks like. It stages in a really valuable way the struggles that come with it. It shows how the messaging of the dominant ideology is absorbed into media and into education. It shows us how individual people, even people we trust, good people, can become the mouthpieces of a rotten system. Everybody is in on it. I'd have to be in on it too. And most importantly of all, The Truman Show imagines liberation, not as utopia, but as a world flawed like our own, full of multiplicity and contradiction and people obsessed with TV. It's a world gained only by struggle and pain, one that often looks like an evil portent in the moment. It's not a sunburst in the clouds or an endless sea, but a small shadowy door that leads off to a territory unmapped, but invested, hopefully, with a greater authenticity. In case I don't see ya. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. You know, Jim Carrey in 1998 when he made this film, he was coming off two years earlier the holy trifecta of Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, and what was the third one? The Mask. It like skyrocketed his stock, being this comedian character and killing it along the way. If you read any of the interviews with him around the time of the production of this film, he talks about how when he walked through the door at the end of this, he could feel like he himself was saying goodbye to the fake version of reality that he had learned to live inside of. He said, once I went through that door, I could not turn around and just be Truman anymore. I had to actually be the true man. There's a fascinating quote, sorry for the profanity, but he says this when he goes to the door. I think Hollywood knows it's full of stuff <clears throat> in a lot of ways and just wants somebody to say it artfully. I think Jesus is looking for people to speak artfully, to name truth that we need to be named, to get past all of our phobias of being uncomfortable, all of our fears of losing people or places. Because every time we refuse to do that, every time we accommodate our lives to the lies that we are told, crucifixes are being put up on Calvary. There are more bodies that we're going to lose and less people that we will actually love. Will we be a people who are truth? Will we be a people who are committed? My favorite thing about the Truman story is at the end when he's actually going for it amidst the storm and the sea and the dream that there is actually something more. The boat has the word or the numbers 139 on the sail. An allusion to Psalm 139. It says, if I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there you ha your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. There is no place that we can go where God isn't already present. So will we go? Pray with me. Jesus, you are good. God, we are grateful. Jesus, you are pulling us into sobriety. God, you're pulling us into um, bigger and better and more honest and painful things. 
God, give us the courage to dethrone happiness as our ultimate good. Lord, give us the courage to actually practice fidelity at all costs. We want to be changed, God, not just ruined. And we know that you want that for us too. In Jesus' name, we all pray this together. Amen. It was Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And part of our call in uh, reclaiming Jesus and following Jesus is testifying to that truth. I was thinking while Matt was talking, one of the beautiful things about being part of this community is that we get to do that together. That we hold this truth of Jesus and everything else we hold loosely. Because one of the things we're learning as we grow is that our faith evolves and we start to open our eyes to the truth. And together, we continue to change and grow. And as Matt said, that's not an easy journey. But we get to do that together. And that's a beautiful thing. And we follow this God who is truth. And on the night before Jesus died, he broke bread. And in breaking that bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So when we come forward tonight during the music... We dip the bread into the cup. We remember that we are called to reclaim Jesus, to testify to that truth. So we invite you to come forward during the music, and there'll be gluten-free elements in the middle, regular elements on the sides. So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever.